I want to read the passage of scripture we're going to be looking at this morning and then lead us into prayer because this passage will shape how we pray and how we respond to our God. Reading this morning from Philippians chapter 2, oh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. The Bible says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word for us. I'm going to invite you to join me as I pray on behalf of our uh, nation, uh, on behalf of uh, a sister church we have down in Tualatin, and then finally for ourselves this morning. Father, I want to thank you for the goodness of your word, for your patient instruction of a church, a people that constantly need it. And what a joy to be part of that church throughout all ages and for all times right here in Hillsborough in the 21st century. Thank you for calling us here. We realize, Father, that we live in a, a nation, in a community that is definitely fractured and broken. That's not news to any of, the, of us. I was reminded earlier this month as so many uh, in our nation commemorated the uh, 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, just how uh, tense and difficult uh, ethnic relations are as a topic in our country and how very much uh, racism is something we continue to deal with and have very divergent and sometimes very energetic opinions about in this country. Father God, I pray for this nation as we continue to wrestle through um, what uh, grace and mercy and justice really look like and how we treat one another. Father, I want to pray, though, specifically for us as a church, even as we just read that uh, we are called to be people whose reasonableness is made known to all. I pray, Father God, that, that you would continue to shape my heart and my thinking and the hearts and the thinking of all of the members of this church so much like your son, that regardless of, of what our specific opinions are on such often divisive issues, we would be a people who are known for their reasonableness, uh, for their graciousness, that that would reflect you, that we would be so uh, not married to our opinions, even when we hold them strongly, but we would be married, as it were, a heart fully invested in the hope that we have in you, that that would come out in the way that we treat people, talk about people, uh, talk with people, and even the way we talk about contentious and highly uh, charged issues. I pray that there would be a qualitative difference in the tone of conversation that we have than in the tone of conversation outside this church that would reflect on you. 
So Jesus, shape me and shape us in that regard, we pray. Even as our nation struggles in these areas, I pray that you would help the members of this church to be an incredible uh, place of safety, to discuss, to disagree, um, and a wonderful place of grace to find the truth of Christ. Father, I want to pray that this morning also. Uh, for our friends at Boone's Ferry Community Church in Tualatin, which is there this week, uh, having lunch with a group of pastors, and thank you for that church hosting it for Pastor Matisse, who has been there uh, now just over a year, uh, seeking to build unity amongst his own elders and congregation is how they move forward. We pray that you would give them that unity. I pray that they too, Father, wherever it is needed within their their church at the moment, uh, you know that, um, where they need to be, especially the elders, uh, men who are willing to advocate for what they see as right and yet also be willing to set aside uh, their opinion when necessary for the greater good of gospel work. I pray that even as they advocate for truth, as they see it, that they would be seen by one another as reasonable. I pray that that would start with Matis as the pastor, uh, that you would give him the grace to have strong convictions, but also humility and a willingness to serve the greater good. And God, lastly, I just want to pray for that same thing for myself and for our church uh, as a whole. Father God, we pray that um, as we continue to um, gather together, as we interact with one another as a church, uh, I pray that, that there would even be within our uh, conversations and our relationships a great sense of trust and affirmation with one another because we are about you and your glory first. And so that even if we uh, disagree with one another in this church, I pray that, that there would not be the unspoken rule in our congregation that, that certain subjects are taboo or you just can't talk about them because you're afraid you'll get shot down. God, we don't want to be that kind of people. And so I pray, Father God, that we would delight to talk with one another, hear from one another, agree and disagree with one another because we have a greater agreement on the truth and the beauty of Christ and our identity in the gospel. God, may that not just be words that we speak and affirm with our minds, but the actual experienced reality that our identity is based in you, our hope is in the gospel, and that frees us to be gracious with one another even as we disagree. Again, that there would be a qualitative difference in who we are as a church. Shape us with joy in Christ. Help us see what that means. We pray that you would do that work, Holy Spirit, in our midst for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And while you are, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We have been working our way through this practical and yet intense New Testament book for some time now. We actually just have two Sundays left. Next Sunday will be our final uh, in this. We're Philippians chapter 4, and while you're turning there, I want to ask, you've already sort of heard the the kind of tone of the passage. We read the passage together. Let me ask you to reflect on your own personal experience for a moment. Uh, Have you ever known someone who seems um, so adamant in their opinions about whatever, I mean, it doesn't really matter what the subject is, but, but they're a person who's so strong in their opinions and they're so adamant about it um, that you don't even want to talk with them? Anybody ever known somebody like that? <laughs> in this day and age, um, anybody not know anybody like that? That's probably, <laughs> I mean, we've all encountered people like that, right? Where you're like, ah, man, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're wrong about that thing, but I'm also pretty sure I don't even want to bring it up with you because <laughs> I'm just going to get blasted. Or the weird one is when you're like, I actually even think you're right about that. Like, I agree with you, and I still don't want to talk to you about it because, like, you're just so, you know, you're so overbearing. We've probably all known people like that. Now, while I was thinking about that this week, I, um, a slightly more convicting question occurred to me. Um, would other people say I'm that kind of person? Nah. <laughs> 
I can't be, right? Because I talk about those other people, those unreasonable people, so that means I must be reasonable, and surely everybody sees me that way, right? <laughs> that was not a poll, Hoth. <laughs> but actually, seriously, it's like, well, I guess I'd like to think everybody sees me as, you know, reasonable, even if I know what I believe and I'm willing to stand for it, that people, people like me and people trust me. Do they? I don't know. How can a person actually believe something, even strongly, and yet still come across as reasonable? Is that possible? And maybe the most important question is, what does any of this have to do with the gospel of Jesus? <laughs> Why are we talking about this this morning? Well, we're talking about it because it's in the Bible, and it's in the Bible because it is an outworking of the central message of this book of Philippians, the call for us as Christians to find our deepest joy in the fact that Christ is exalted, not necessarily in our circumstance. And that begins to work itself out, and that's what the Bible is dealing with here. Uh, this passage is about displaying Jesus in our lifestyle, and as old as it is, written as it was almost 2,000 years ago in a completely different part of the world, you might have thought it was written in the internet age in 21st century America when you start to look at some of the issues it brings up and the applications that it so strongly suggests. What we're going to see here is very simply um, two things. There's a call to live a certain way, be reasonable, we'll talk about what that means in a minute, and then two essential things to focus on in order to make that happen. That's really what this passage is about. The call and two essential things to focus on in order to answer that call. So with that in mind, let's just dive right in. What is the calling here? Uh, this passage begins with the Apostle Paul uh, addressing, now this is a letter to a whole church in the ancient city of Philippi, but there are two ladies who were members of that church, clearly prominent members. They were active, they were effective, they were influential. Uh, the Apostle Paul had known them personally when he had been in Philippi himself. Uh, he identifies these ladies as uh, women who had, like they, they have served, they have sacrificed, they have stretched, they have invested themselves for the greater good of gospel work side by side with him. He's like, I know these ladies, they're my friends, I've, I've been in the trenches with them, so to speak. And he's actually uh, remarkably confident that they are living out the truths of the gospel. He refers to them at the end of verse 3 as people whose names are written in the book of life. That's Bible language for saying they're going to be in heaven someday. I mean, he is totally convinced these women have experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ and they're living it out. But here's the issue. They weren't getting along with one another in the church. There was some sort of conflict that clearly wasn't going away between these two women. Now, he doesn't mention what it is. Historians don't have any of the records on it, so we have no idea what their actual disagreement was about. It doesn't really matter. What's so interesting is why in the Bible does he call these ladies out by name and what does he uh, urge them to do? What does he tell them to do? Uh, we certainly know that their disagreement, whatever it was, was not, um, it was not an essential issue. It was not like a doctrinal issue. Um, it's not like one of them, you know, really thought that Jesus was the Messiah and some, another one didn't or something like that. It's not like one of them thought you have to earn salvation and the other one thought it was free because the Apostle Paul dealt with those kinds of controversies all the time. So if that was the issue, he would have very likely addressed it. Whatever it was, it was a non-essential disagreement, but it was obviously important enough to them that despite their Christian convictions, they were not able to resolve it. So what does he tell them to do? Well, the exhortation is uh, in verse uh, two there. He says, I urge these two ladies to agree in the Lord. 
to agree in the Lord. Now that's interesting. To agree. It literally means to have this have the same mindset. It's not necessarily that he's saying, I want them to think the same way about every single situation. The implication here is not that in a church, you know, like the one in first century Philippi, or even like our church today, every single Christian is supposed to have the exact same set of opinions on every, you know, family and social and political and and vocational issue that's out there. It's not the idea that there's this like prescribed set of right Christian ways to live on every topic under the sun and your job is just to learn it and parrot the party line. That's not what he means when he says, I want them to agree in the Lord. What he's talking about, he says, I want them to have the same mindset, the same outlook, the same essential values and apply them to this disagreement, which in his mind they clearly were not doing. In fact, it's the same language that he used clear back in chapter 2, verse 5, where he told the entire church in Philippi, have the same mind in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, and you remember when we studied that passage a few weeks ago, to talk about how Jesus Christ was so exalted and yet he was humble and he was willing to come to this earth and live a human life and then even die so that you and I could have eternal life. He was willing to give of himself when he didn't have to for the glory of God and the good of other people. That was his mindset. The Apostle Paul tells the church, have the same mindset. Live out that same mindset. That's the exact same language he uses here. He says, have these, help these ladies have the same mind, to agree, to think the same way about what's most important. There's a not-so-subtle implication that whatever they were arguing about, it may have been important, but it wasn't most important. And their unwillingness to resolve it may have been treating it as if it was of ultimate importance. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul didn't take sides. He explicitly says, I urge, I entreat one woman. I urge, I entreat the other. He's looking to both of them, and he's like, it's not even an issue of who's right. I'm urging you both to have the mindset of Christ in this situation. To be willing, potentially, even to lay down your view of whatever this disagreement is, if so doing accomplishes the greater purposes of unity in the church and the advance of the gospel in your city. Since, he's saying to these ladies, you're both Christians, you've both proven you care about Jesus, so care about Jesus more than you care about being right. Ouch. <laughs> I gotta admit, that, that struck me this week. Like practically, experientially, care about Jesus more than you care about being right. This, this is a deep character kind of issue that the Bible is addressing here. It's a call for Christians to be a people who are most um, deeply and most passionately committed to seeing Christ's kingdom spread. Like, that's, that's the, 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 the fire that lights our jets when we get up out of bed in the morning. We talked about that last Sunday. That's the goal. That's what we're straining and reaching for all the time to see the infinite beauty, uh, worth of Christ become ultimately beautiful in the eyes of as many people as possible. That is the number one goal and passion of a Christian life. That's the call that the Bible's putting on our lives. We who follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now, if that's an important thing to me, that's the most important thing to me, and it's also the most important thing to you, then that fact will change, it will affect and shape how we talk to one another. Um, especially when we don't see eye to eye on lesser things that may be important, but they're not ultimately important. 
It will lead us to discuss things. Uh, it will lead us at times to have healthy disagreements. I mean, there's a time and a place for that amongst friends and amongst family members and even amongst churches. There's a time to consider other points of view and debate and try to figure out what's right or what we should do or how we should live. But there's also a time and a place to set aside my viewpoint, even if it's a deeply held viewpoint, in order to achieve the greatest good about which I am the most passionate, that Jesus would make himself known in my city through my local church. That's a deep character issue, and it is surprisingly hard to do sometimes. Have you ever experienced that? Please say yes so I don't feel like a total idiot, because I have. I have. By the way, this is one of the reasons that when you turn to um, what we call the pastoral epistles, and there's these lists of qualifications in the Bible for what elders are supposed to be like, the, the leaders of a church, um, one of the items on that list of character qualities for elders is that an elder needs to be uh, someone who is not contentious, which is interesting. Not, not contentious, not a fighter all the time, you know? I gotta have my way. Now, that does not mean that in the church, elders are supposed to be kind of mealy-mouthed yes-men who <laughs> have no personal opinions and they just follow whatever the crowd is doing and, and rubber stamp everything as if that helps anybody. That, that's not what's being said at all. The assumption is they have convictions and they, they, they seek God's wisdom and they contribute what they have to a discussion about you know, where the church should go or whatever. There's, there's lots of, of healthy debate that's supposed to take place within a group of elders. But at the character issue, an elder has to be a guy who is not fundamentally contentious. That means he can do what the Apostle Paul's talking about here. He recognizes that there's a time to say, I've said my piece, I've made my case, and if the group is going another way, I'm letting it go. Like, I'm in. I I think it's the wrong way to go, but I've had the chance to make that case and nobody agrees with me, so (laughs) maybe I'm the problem. Like, I don't think I am, but okay, I'll go this way. And with our elders here at Harvest, there's so many times I wish I could play videotapes for you guys of some of the discussions we have, because a lot of that happens. We do discuss things, and we do see things differently, and we do at times even kind of push on each other a little bit about, <clears throat> yes, but, or I don't think that's the right way to see that, or yes, but have we thought about this? And uh, I have, but I disagree. And often, this beautiful consensus just kind of emerges from those discussions. It's a wonderful thing. Occasionally, um, the consensus is not unanimous, <laughs> There are times where we have things that we talk about and discuss, and it's like, I don't think anybody has anything new to say, but there's like kind of, you know, four of us that are thinking one way and two of us kind of thinking another way. And in those cases, we go with the four because that's what God wants. (laughs) And actually, the two might be right, but there comes a point when I have to lay down even a deeply held conviction so that the church can move forward. If it's it's a life or death doctrinal issue, you know, you fight it tooth and nail, but that's usually not the case. That's usually not the case. It is surprisingly hard, though, to do that at the time, even on things that are not huge issues. But if I think I'm right and I haven't persuaded people, I just want to yell out her! Because if I try again, maybe I'll get in my way. I have to look at myself and go, "What what am I doing? Why does that matter to me so much? Isn't there something greater? That's a deep character issue. So many examples of this in church life. The sort of classic obvious one would be things like uh, the way the building looks or the way the music sounds. Um, So many different kind of views and opinions on that. 
Um, it's really interesting to me. I've been here at Harvest long enough that I've seen people who weren't part of our church in the past kind of come in and give us their first impressions of our building. And I've literally had sometimes within the same month, people come in and say like, wow, your building is like super modern. You know, you got all these like wavy lines that are designed by acoustic engineers and, you know, these screens up there. And it's like, man, this is nothing like any churches I've ever been in. This is like a really modern building. And then like sometimes a week or two later, somebody will come in and say, wow, this place feels really traditional. Like, you actually have pews instead of those, like, cool theater seats. Like, who does that anymore? Like, yeah, but they're padded, okay? They weren't padded in the old days. We're like, mo- okay, I don't know, anyway. They're like modern pews, I don't know. But anyway, it's just, there, there could be so many different divergent viewpoints, and oftentimes we can marshal arguments that are more than just subjective, you know? A church should look this way. Music should go that way. Oh, a church should run this kind of a program. Why do we not address this issue? Budget choices. Why are we spending $50,000 on this instead of that this next year? And on and on the list goes. Friends, these are good things to have opinions about, and there are times and places in the life of our church where we actually want to and entertain those kinds of discussions and disagreements. It's good and right to do that. But then there's also a time and a place to set aside my view on such matters and joyfully embrace what my church is doing so that it can move forward and see the glory of Christ displayed. So I think a key question of the day, especially for our members, I'd like to exhort us to this, is simply this. Am I the kind of person who can lay down my convictions about non-essential things for the greater good of gospel ministry? Am I that kind of person? I think that's what the Bible's asking us to think about. Maybe another way to make that a little bit more specific is can I think of a specific time in the not-too-distant past where I did that? For many of you, I already know the answer is yes. Sometimes you lay down your convictions about something every week because it's not perfect the way you would want it, and you're willing to let that aside for the glory of the gospel. That's a good thing. But if I can't think of a time recently when I've laid aside something I hold deeply for a greater good, then I might be the kind of person whose joy comes more from getting his way than it comes from the beauty of Christ being seen. You know, one thing to also mention to this just before we move on into how how this works, how to pursue this, is that this also means that it's okay within a church uh, community to ask, like, what really is essential? Um, that's okay too. There's some things that clearly are essential, the core doctrines of Christianity, the things that we've posted in our, our core documents, the, our doctrinal statement, our beliefs, uh, our membership covenant, the essentials of what it means to be a member here, those kinds of things. Those, those are like really essentials. Um, we, we don't really discuss and debate whether or not we think God exists around here or whether Jesus is the Savior, okay? That's, <laughs> this is what we do. This is who we are. These are the core essential truths that we're built on. Some things are clearly essential. Many things are clearly not essential. Um, how often do you eat out? Uh, should you ever watch a PG-13 movie? I don't know, the list could go on to thousands of things. Um, but you know what? There's a whole lot of stuff in, in, in life in the middle where it's a little more gray. Like they're more important than maybe like where did you go to eat? And they're probably less important than like is Jesus God? Um, but they're still really important. And to some of us, they may be like a nine importance on a scale of one to 10. And to others of us, that might be like a four and we might need to discuss and debate even that. And that's a good thing. to be willing to hear one another, especially to hear those who are coming from a different place with us, even when I don't agree, is a good thing to be known for. It's a good thing to be known for. Now, 
speaking of what we're known for, that's, that's where this passage of Scripture kind of bottom lines us, where it sort of lands the plane. Um, in verse uh, 5, he says something interesting. Let your reasonableness, he's now addressing again the entire church congregation, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. He's going to get here into like, okay, how do I become the kind of person that has the right convictions and is willing to stand for them in the right way and yet not be overbearing and willing to lay them down when necessary for the greater good? Like, how do I do that? And what we're about to get is two very practical suggestions. One is to release a negative and the other is to embrace a positive. He starts by saying, look, the goal for each one of us as Christians is that our reasonableness <clears throat> would be known to everyone. That that reasonableness word is kind of an interesting one. It really kind of means um, pliable, um, gentle, yielding. There, there, there's some give there. <laughs> that that's the kind of person that I am. As a Christian who believes in the absolute truths of the gospel of Jesus and the word of God, when other people see me, do they see somebody who is rigid and unyielding or do they see somebody who is somewhat pliable? even as he stands on his convictions. There's, there's some give there. There's some gentleness there. There's some willingness to hear uh, there. Which leads to the question, is that how I'm seen? Maybe especially by people who I tend to disagree with. Maybe they're from a different kind of theological bent, you know, than me. Um, I'm a strong Baptist, there's these other strong Presbyterians and Methodists out there. We agree on the gospel. We disagree on some pretty important matters of how God wants us to run a church. Am I unyielding and hostile? Or am I seen as reasonable and pliant even as I disagree? Maybe it's a political thing. I tend to be more liberal and my friends tend to be more conservative. Or I tend to be more conservative and my family tends to be more liberal. And we know where we stand on those things. But am I seen as somebody who is just unyielding and rigid? Or is there a sense of like, okay, we, I, that person disagrees with me, but, but I can talk to her and she won't jump down my throat. <laughs> I'm not threatened by the whole idea of just bringing something up with her. That, that's what this is actually saying. That's what this means. Let your reasonableness be known. Put it on display. Strive to have a reputation of being the kind of person people can talk to, especially people who know you don't agree with them what Christians are called to be in our circles of influence. By the way, just, just to clarify, I hope it's clear, but let me just state it explicitly. This does not mean don't have convictions or don't have strong convictions. That's not what this is saying. Remember who is writing this. This was the Apostle Paul, right? <laughs> this was the guy who's like, I wish everybody teaching false doctrine would just emasculate themselves. You're like, my gosh, did he just say that? Yeah, that's in the Bible, right? He's like going after people who are teaching false doctrine in churches. He's going to prison for proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord and you have to repent and believe in him in order to be saved. He was totally uncompromising on the essential truths of the Bible and the trustworthiness of the Bible as God's word. And yet, he is the one who is saying, let your reasonableness be known to everybody. So clearly he does not have in mind, like there's one extreme where you have opinions and you yell at people. And there's another extreme where you have no opinions at all and you just don't believe in anything and you're nice. Although, you know what, oddly, sometimes I feel like those are the only alternatives that our modern society gives us. 
I don't know, what do you think? Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's how it seems to me. Like, it's like we live in this world in modern internet America where people either have opinions and they're screaming about them all the time, or nobody has opinions about anything and they don't want to talk about anything and whatever goes. It's sort of like, wow, is there some other alternative? I think that's what the Bible's calling us to. This does not mean don't have convictions, nor does it mean, well, have convictions, but hide them. Pretend you don't have convictions and just don't say anything that'll offend anybody. Rather, this has to do with, no, you're a Christian. You're grounded in the truths of the gospel and scripture, but it's talking about our demeanor, uh, with the way we come across, the way we interact with people, especially people who don't think like we do, starting in our own churches and also extending to beyond. The picture here is that Christians are called to put effort into being seen as uh, reasonable, yielding, pliant, the kind of person you can feel safe talking to. I thought of the difference between an oak tree and a palm tree. Have you guys ever seen a palm tree in like a hurricane? You know, and they're like, they're swaying and they're like bent over like 45, 50 degrees and these winds are just like whipping everything. I mean, they're scouring all the sand off. They're picking up boats and cars and throwing them and, and afterwards they're like, all the palm trees are standing. You're like, what? <laughs> Like, how did that happen? You ever seen an oak tree after a hurricane? Usually it's down on its side, right? <laughs> the difference is, and I'm no like tree expert, but, but the difference is from what I understand, palm trees are just put together in a way that's completely different than, you know, like oak trees and pine trees and some of the other trees we're used to. They're, they're, um, their root balls work in such a way that they're very bottom heavy for one thing, but they also, their trunks are just like, I mean, they're like rubber. They're like Gumby, you know? And so when the wind comes, like they can bend and flex with it, even though they're still solidly anchored. And interestingly enough, the rigid, unyielding tree is sometimes the one that gets knocked over. The solidly anchored but pliant tree is the one that can kind of hang in there. That's a picture of what I think the Bible's calling us to. Be anchored in the convictions of the truths of Scripture and the truths of the gospel. They're clear, they're right, they're from God. But as we interact with people, be reasonable, be seen as being pliant. It's worth asking at this point how my social media presence reflects that mindset. For those of you that have one, some of you avoid social media altogether. Who knows, 20 years from now we may look back and say you were right. <laughs> but it's the world we live in. Most of us have Instagram accounts or we're on Snapchat or on Facebook or whatever the thing is. How does my social media presence reflect reasonableness as a Christian? Does it either reflect convictions where I'm constantly screaming people down? Does it reflect no convictions at all? I don't believe in anything. Or does it reflect absolute convictions on the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ from a person who is reasonable? who's pliant, who's willing to hear and entertain other points of view and talk and dialogue and understand even while I stay anchored in the truths of the gospel that are changing my life. It's okay to use social media to reflect on theological topics or the news of the day or social and political issues or whatever. But maybe not all the time. Because that's the only thing that ever comes up on my Newsfeed, I have a Christian friend who's like that. He's not part of this church, so don't start looking around and wondering if I'm talking about you. I'm not, not part of this church. Um, lives a ways away, but I, I'm still connected with him on Facebook. And I mean, it's just, you know, two or three times a day he's posting something and it's all politics, all the time. A lot of snark, a lot of volume. 
and it just gets like weary. I actually tend to agree with most of his political positions personally, and I can't stand listening to him. I can't imagine what guys that disagree with him politically think about him. Just kind of like, bro, do you have anything else to talk about? I mean, let's, I don't know. And we should also be circumspect about how we wade into such contentious and hypersensitized topics. It doesn't necessarily mean avoid them. Sometimes we shouldn't avoid them. But it is always worth asking ourselves, how is somebody who has a different viewpoint than me going to read this? Like, how are they going to hear it? Are they going to just hear that I am advocating for my view on this social issue or that social issue? Or are they going to hear this as a personal shot at them because they disagree with me? The former's fine. The latter's problematic. Thinking about how we come across is important. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. I can't always control what people choose to, to do with, with me and how they choose to interpret me, but I can control how I'm coming across. So how do we do this? Well, two very simple things. First, we let go of a negative. Secondly, we hold on to a positive. First is let going of a neg- letting go of a negative, and, and the negative is anxiety. Anxiety, of all things. In verses 6 and 7, um, the Bible immediately goes from let your reasonableness be known to everybody, and then he immediately says, take all the things that you're feeling anxiety about and cast them to the Lord. Give them over to Jesus in prayer. And then there's this great promise um, in verse uh, 7 that the, that the peace of God, when you do that, um, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. When I've taken the things that are causing me worry and anxiety and given them over to Jesus, he says there's a promise. God's peace that, that transcends my circumstances is beyond just normal understanding. How can you be peaceable when you're worried about this thing? Because I know Jesus has got it. That peace, the Bible says, will guard our hearts and minds, like literally standing guard. It will help my heart and mind not run pell-mell down the road of, of panic where I'm, I'm worried and I'm fearful and I'm a victim of that. This is being posed to us as the antidote as Christians to living a life ruled by fear. I cast my anxieties on Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Those two statements may initially look disconnected. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. Cast your anxieties on Jesus. It sounds kind of just like a mishmash, hodgepodge of, of, of kind of lifestyle exhortations for Christians that don't necessarily relate to each other. But it don't think we have to think about it very long before we realize they do relate to each other. The reason that he's talking about casting our anxieties on Jesus as Christians right after he tells us to let our reasonableness be seen by everybody is because quite often our anxiety is what drives us to need to be right all the time. Which in turn makes us often come across as unyielding, unreasonable people. We've probably all experienced this at some extent. If I'm really worried about something that I know I can't completely control, one of the most natural human reactions to that is to just grab for anything that I can control. (laughs) Let me just control anything at all, and I need to get some control in my life because I feel out of control. I feel worried about the future. I'm not necessarily confident that it is going to go well from this point on, whatever the issue is. And so oftentimes the temptation is to respond by seizing as much control as possible. That can make me often more rigid in my view of how things should come, more loud because ultimately it's being driven by anxiety. It's being driven by fear. The more my heart is protected by confidence in Christ, 
the more likely I'm to come across as a reasonable person. So the first step in becoming a reasonable kind of Christian is to make sure that my own insides aren't just like wadded up into knots with fear and anger and stress about whatever the issue is. Because if my insides are wadded up like that, it will often come out on how I interact with others and on how tightly I hold to my opinions. I mean, if I feel like, like my life may come unglued if my opinion doesn't carry the day, then it's threatening to even, even entertain an alternative viewpoint, even to hear somebody else talk about it. But on the other hand, if I've actually left everything in Jesus' hands, I no longer need to see my views win out. I may want to see them win out, and that's okay. But I don't, I don't need at a deep level to see my views carry the day because I know it's going to be all right even if they don't because God's got this thing. Can I really trust him with that? Can I really give those anxieties to him? Or do I grab him back and say, no, 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 it's got to go my way. Otherwise, I think I may implode. Again, this does not mean that I don't have views, that I don't have opinions. It just makes, me, it, it makes it much easier for people who don't share those opinions to talk with me because I seem less threatening. The bottom line is simply this. Confident, peaceful people come across as quite reasonable even when they have strong opinions. In general terms, confident, peaceful people tend to come across as quite reasonable even when they have very strong opinions. That's what Scripture is calling us to. When our confidence and peace come from Christ, not from having my view of this situation carry the day, it affects the way I come across. So, the first step in being a reasonable person, a reasonable believer in Jesus' truth, it's, it's, a, it's a negative one. It's releasing anxiety in prayer to Christ. But the second one then is a positive. Having released anxiety, we intentionally embrace the joy that is available to us, that is actually already ours in Christ if you've repented of your sins and embraced him as your Lord and Savior. Intentionally embrace and dwell on the joy that is available in Christ. He started saying this right away in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Do you get the idea that this is important to Paul? <laughs> rejoice. It, it, it's a verb. It means experience joy. If you're a Christian, that's something you could do. But he doesn't just say any joy. He says joy in the Lord. Joy because of who Christ is and what Christ has done and what he is doing right now in your life and what he will do for you in the future. We don't have to think about it too long as Christians to realize, oh my gosh, we have been given so much in Christ it's hard to imagine. You never run out of energy and joy as you continue to imagine what he's given us. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're thinking about that all the time. I have to stop and think about what, what do I have in Christ? How much am I thinking about that and dwelling on that? One of the things that interests me about the last couple of verses here, verses 8 and 9, where he sort of fleshes out this command to rejoice by, by saying, consciously focus on it. Whatever's true and honorable, whatever's just, pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. That's the bottom line takeaway for us as Christians, the, the do thing. <laughs> he lists all this great stuff. There's all this stuff out there, so think about it. There's all this focus on our focus, right? 
there's all this thinking about what we're supposed to be thinking about. Why all the focus on the focus? <laughs> because if I'm to experience the peace of Christ, I need to focus my mind and heart on it. Why? Because simply by nature, we as people tend to accommodate our thinking to the environment around us. That's just kind of who we are. We, we've all experienced that. Uh, I remember a part-time job I had when I was in graduate school where uh, I was working in a warehouse and, and with a lot of other people and, and over time the team just kind of got really snippy and gossipy with each other and there'd be breaks and somebody was off somewhere else and everybody started talking about them and you know I'm like okay, I'm a Christian I'm not going to participate in this and so I just didn't but you know what after a few months of that like I caught myself thinking that girl really irritates me it's the same girl everybody what, where did that thought come from it was my environment. Like, I had to fight to, like, not get sucked into this negativity because everybody was kind of negative to each other. Have you ever kind of felt something like that? It, it, it's just like what you're around all the time, you just start to think about, and, and your emotions get invested in, and it just sort of becomes like our mental furniture. And so if we're constantly filling our mind with negative things, we tend to worry more and assume the worst. That's no big, deep insight, is it? <laughs> but it's true. But the reverse is also true. The reverse is also true. And the impact on our perspective can be dramatic. And so the Bible here says, Christian, invest, like work, focus on thinking about the manifold, bountiful, unbelievable amount of good and great things that Christ has given you if you have repented of your sins and embraced him as your savior. Because if you fill your mind with that stuff, guess what your emotions are going to get invested in? Guess what's going to become your mental furniture? And suddenly now peace is much more of a great reality no matter what's going on in my life. The Apostle Paul holds himself up as an example in verse 9. He's like, like this, this is real. You can do this. Um, he says, what you've heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He's like, you've seen me do it. Just think of what we know of the Apostle Paul from this letter in Philippians already. Back in chapter 1, we know two things about him, at least. First of all, he was in prison simply for being a Christian and announcing that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, not because he actually committed any morally you know, culpable crime. So he's, he's in prison. He's unable to move about freely. And I, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm so used to having been around the Bible for many years, thinking of the Apostle Paul as a guy who was in prison, that sometimes those words don't... I was like, yeah, Paul was in prison. I know that. But like, think about that. Have you ever been in prison? Maybe some of us have had that experience, but most of us probably haven't. Like, you have no freedom to like, go where you want to go and do what you want to do and be with who you want to be with. You know, after this worship service is over, we're all going to get up and we're going to decide where we're headed next. Maybe you've already decided. But whether the decision is past uh, or future, you're probably the one that's going to make it. And you're free to do that. Nobody's going to stop you. The kind of... of, of Lack of freedom from being thrown in prison. What's worse for, for the fact you didn't even commit a crime? You shouldn't be there by all standards of justice, but there you are. And of course, in Paul's case, he was actually unsure um, of his fate as well. It was possible he would be released at some point. He didn't know when. It was also possible he would be executed. This might be it, and he didn't know at this point. That is a lot of restriction and a lot of uncertainty. So the first problem is he's in prison. That's a big deal. Second problem is, if that wasn't bad enough, is that we know that there were opponents of his who were only interested in their social status, and they were using his imprisonment to boost themselves up by tearing him down. 
So they were out there um, saying things about him that weren't true, knowing that he couldn't show up and defend himself because he's in prison. And so his reputation is being trashed, and he's aware of this, and he can't do anything about it because he's in jail. Can you even imagine? I'm not sure I can, um, but I know I'd probably be pretty devastated. Interesting thing is the Apostle Paul wasn't. Verse 14 of chapter 1, I'll just read it briefly. He says, Most of the brothers have become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's like happy because more people are sharing the gospel because of his imprisonment. And then down to verse 18, these people that are trashing his reputation, he says, So what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. Same thing he tells us to do. I find my joy in Christ, not in my circumstances. Why? How do you do that? How do you get to have that kind of mindset? Was Paul some super spiritual giant that was just like of an otherworldly you know, experience that you and I could never have? No, 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 and no. You get there by following the Bible's instructions here in chapter four. It's a long cultivated habit of living a lifestyle of choosing to focus on the riches that I have in Christ which can never be taken away from me. This could take hundreds of forms. We don't have time to go into them all. People often use things like gratitude journals. Um, some of you I know have done that before. It's a great thing. Like it's the, you, you stop one day and um, once a day and think of something very concrete and specific in your life to be thankful for and then you just pray and you thank God for it and you do that the next day and the next day and just each time you have to think of something new. <laughs> you can't repeat. The interesting thing is you do that for a couple weeks and you're like, yeah, that's fine. You do that for several months and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, let me look back on like six months. I got hundreds of things here that I have to be thankful for. What was I complaining about again? You know, it, it starts to affect you over time through discipline. It rearranges the mental furniture that's focusing on the good that Christ has brought. Um, keeping prayer logs and answered prayer requests, uh, paying attention to the media and music that we choose to consume, on and on it goes. What can I do to rearrange the mental furniture so that I'm focusing on who Christ is and what he has given me so that I can give my anxieties to him and be at peace? At that point, I'm ready to be seen as somebody who believes in the truth of the gospel and yet is reasonable. Last brief thought, um, the competitive nature of our 24-hour news cycle these days is not helpful to us in this regard. And I'm sure we all know that, but I just want to get us to think about that, especially for members of our church. Um, the democratization of information due to the internet, it's a mixed blessing. There's good and bad with it. Um, part of the bad is that everybody needs to get noticed in order to survive. Right? So every blog, every um, you know, uh, podcast, every website, Everybody has to, they, they got to earn their views and their clicks, and crisis sells. So everything in this hypersensitized media culture, whether it's television or internet or whatever, everything is like always at a perpetual 10 level, you know? Everything is a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. Every night's headlines, you almost get the impression, are going to determine whether or not the world ends tomorrow. Tune in at 11 for more details, Right? And everybody seems almost like they're angry all the time. Does that mean you should never watch any of that stuff? Well, no, not necessarily. We're not going to start throwing out like legalistic do's and don'ts here. But I tell you what, a wise Christian is going to be really thoughtful about how much of that I'm consuming. 
Because too much, you know, whether it's political talk, radio, or television, or, or whatever the thing is, if I'm around that all the time, and everybody's always angry, and everything is a crisis, guess how I feel? Anxious and angry. Come to Jesus, he loves you. You're like, wow. Focus on what is good and what is right and what is beautiful. We have to wrap this up, friends. Disciples of Jesus put him on display and how we see the world and interact with others in it, especially those that we don't agree with, both inside the church and outside. Our Savior has called us to be people who stand firm in the truths of the gospel that he has revealed from heaven. Those are non-negotiable. Those are life. And we proclaim them with joy and boldness and humility. Yet also to be known as people who are reasonable, thoughtful, and gracious, not unyielding, prickly, and ugly. There's a huge gospel opportunity for us here, and, and that's how I want to end this morning. There's a huge gospel opportunity here. We've, we've alluded to our culture and kind of our media culture and, and, and a couple of times this morning, and there's much more that could be said about that. But one thing I think is true, not very many of us have too many models in this day and age, I would suggest, and this is just me, maybe you disagree, but I don't think we have very many models of what it looks like to be a person of deep conviction about the truth, and yet gracious and humble as we boldly proclaim it. Th those, those seem like contradictions. You know, you're either bold and loud and mad, or you don't believe in anything, and you just let everybody do whatever, and nothing matters, and it's all up to you. There's not a lot of models of what clear conviction of the truth looks like from a humble, gracious, reasonable perspective. But I'll tell you what, there are a lot of. There are a lot of people who are desperate to talk about are there other viewpoints, maybe even on the subject of God and the gospel, but they'll never do it if they feel threatened most of the time. What a gospel opportunity to say we are people of conviction about the truth of God and yet I'm reasonable. I love you. I get it. I'm willing to hear. I'm willing to consider. I'm willing to talk with you. I'm willing to process with you and get in your shoes and understand where you're coming from. And then I'd love an opportunity to tell you about Jesus. A lot of people are convinced such a thing doesn't exist, but that's what we're called to. And by God's grace, that's what he can make us. We're going to approach the communion table right now recognizing that Jesus died. Yes, to save us but also to transform us into his image. Somebody who came, the Bible says, full to the top of grace and truth. Never compromising or unwavering on either one. He shed his blood, it's depicted by the cup, and his body was broken for us on the cross, it's depicted by the bread, so that as we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, his spirit moves in and transforms our lives. That's what's pictured by us eating and drinking together. So I wanna ask, uh, as we get ready, to enter the communion time. Ask the, the worship team to come on up. Go ahead and um, partake of communion now. And then they're going to be playing music. What's going to happen in just the next couple of minutes uh, is we're going to give some time to just be quiet, just do a little bit of reflection. Um, the team's going to receive communion. They'll just start playing music softly. And then uh, Pastor Drath will give us the, the cue. And that's our opportunity to get up. If you are a Christian here this morning, uh, we would invite you then to come up to one of the tables. There's four here up front. There's two in the back. There's one up there in the balcony. Uh, come up, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and then eat it as a way to remember what Jesus said. His blood shed for us, his body broken for us. This is not just something we do out of ritual. It's something we do to proclaim his death, to say, Jesus, I need you to change me and make me who you want me to be. Thank you for cleansing me of my sins.